many of you have read anything about Ernest Shackleton? Did you ever read the book, The Endurance? Or visiting in Scotland some few years ago, we were, had the opportunity to, to visit a museum in which many of the artifacts from some of his trips were on display. But while on one of his expeditions to the Antarctic, Ernest Shackleton was compelled to leave some of his men on Elephant Island with the intention of returning for them. They got stranded there, um, and he had to leave them there and uh, go for help, which was a very difficult and long process. And he had every intention of returning to them and bringing them back to England, but he was unavoidably delayed. And by the time he could go for them, he found to his dismay that the sea had frozen over and his men were literally cut off. Three times he tried to reach them, but his efforts ended in failure. Finally, on his last effort, he found a narrow channel through the ice. And guiding his small ship back to the island, he was delighted to find his men, all 22 of them, isolated now for four and a half months, not only alive and well, but prepared to get on board. They were soon on their way to safety and home, and after the excitement all ended, Sir Ernest inquired how it was that they were ready to get aboard so promptly when he got there. And they told him that every morning, every morning, their leader rolled up his sleeping bag and he said to them, get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today. Unquote. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth is much more certain than Sir Ernest Shackleton's return to Elephant Island. Christ's promise to return to claim his redeemed, established upon his word and his character, is secure. It is still the blessed hope of all who love him, a hope that will not fail. Amen? How tragic would it have been if Shackleton had returned to find that his men had lost all hope and that he had begun to speak poorly of him, leading the others in mutiny against him? What if his crew assumed that their once admired and respected leader had lost all interest in them? How ready do you think that they would have been when he finally returned for them? You know what the theme of Jesus is, one of his very last sermons before he went to the cross was? Be ready. Be ready. In Matthew 24, verse 42, Jesus said, Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Now, he didn't say anything about when the day of the Lord would be, but we know some things. We know that every eye will see him, right? that every knee will bow to him, that every tongue shall confess and openly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One writer described the event with profound intimacy. Quote, every person who has ever lived will be present on that final gathering. Every heart that has ever beat, every mouth that has ever spoken, on that day you will be surrounded by a sea of people rich, and poor and famous and unknown kings, bums, 
brilliant, demented, all will be present. And all will be looking in one direction. All will be looking at him. You won't look at anyone else. No side glances to see what others are wearing. No whispers about new jewelry or comments about who's present in the service. At this, the greatest gathering in history, you will have eyes for only one, the Son of Man. My friends, at a time in which people live in abject uncertainty, this world right now, that day is a day of absolute certainty. We can count on that day when he returns. But how many of us would consider ourselves really ready today? In this moment, are you aware that at least one twentieth of your New Testament speaks about Jesus Christ's return? That there are over 300 references to the second coming of Christ. 23 out of the 27 books of the New Testament talk about it. And by the way, they speak about it with as much confidence as you and I have that today is the Lord's Day. It's Sunday. For this reason, Jesus said, you be ready too for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think that he will. And you know what will happen to those who are on earth upon his return? At that time, according to Matthew, quote, and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. It's in Matthew 25. And that word separate there is a sad, sad word. It's colored by finality. It means to sever from the rest and cut off from all interaction. It carries the idea of separating things that would normally be together. A mother from a daughter, for example. A father from a son. A husband from a wife. And as we know from our recent experience over the last 12 months, when that kind of separation happens here on earth, it is painful, isn't it? And it's sorrowful. But the thought of it being done for an absolute eternity is horrible beyond imagination, isn't it? Then the king, the scripture says, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, Matthew 25, verse 34, 41, and 46. Now, no one likes the thought of that scenario, do they? Well, let me tell you, I don't believe Jesus does either. That's why he always issues a word of warning to us. His return is certain. It will be sudden. It will be unexpected. And it will be final. And it will be irreversible. So, shouldn't we be ready for it? How ready are you for the Lord's return? Looking around, we may get the impression that his return is just a fantasy, a figment of, one, some, of someone's hopeful imagination. 
Yet somewhere deep down inside, we know the truth of the matter, and it scares us to death, doesn't it? It should scare us to life. Do you fear his return? Are you secretly hoping it won't happen anytime soon? Be honest. Is that fear the result of your unpreparedness? Maybe your nervousness is trying to tell you something you have known for a long time. Maybe, maybe you and I know that there are a lot of things we need to change in order to be ready when he comes. Maybe you and I need to be reminded that the certainty of his return emphasizes the need for our true repentance. Sounds very much like the people living in the days of Malachi. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. I've been in and out of this book recently, as you well know. I've preached from it a couple of times just in the last few weeks. Malachi chapter 3, the first six verses of that chapter. Follow along with me. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may be present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. Malachi's world was an astoundingly similar world to ours. People were holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. Others had become brazen, shaking their fists at God and challenging his character and they had given up on the prophecies concerning the Lord's deliverance. They had slipped into this cynical attitude that trying to maintain um, their moral and religious distinctiveness among the rest of the world was absolutely useless. And so they kind of abandoned the fight. They had actually come to the place of believing that God had changed his mind about things that he had relaxed his standards concerning the way that they were to live and practice their faith. In fact, because no judgment seemed to be imminent, they had convinced themselves that God wasn't all that upset about sin. How do you feel about that? Now, their thought process went like this. Imagine, if you will, if God isn't going to act justly on our behalf to judge evil, then we're just going to relax our standards as well. You think that's a contemporary thought process? 
and relax them they did to the point where they challenged God and they accused him of favoring those, actually favoring those who did evil. Their attitude in chapter 2, verse 17, has a very contemporary ring to it. In short, look at verse 17 of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? So this attitude in that, in that verse it has a very contemporary ring to it, doesn't it? It's like they're saying, if there is a God of justice, either he's asleep or he just doesn't care. Have you heard that before? Have you thought that before? But as the prophet Habakkuk pointed out 200 years earlier, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. You know what? God does care. He's not asleep. And he's not late about keeping his promises, as Eugene Peterson points out in his rendition of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter says he is restraining himself on account of you, holding back the end because he doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. That's the way it renders it in the message. Listen to those last eight words again. Eight significant words that everyone in this room should wrap our heads around this morning. He's giving everyone space and time to change. That's God's grace, isn't it? But you know as well as I do, if you're a student of your Bible at all, that that time and space will eventually run out, won't it? And none of us knows when. But the people of Malachi's day assumed that they had all the time and space in the world, and they were wrong. You know what the three, three greatest lies of the devil are, don't you? I've said it before from this pulpit. How many of you remember what, what they are? There is no heaven, there is no hell, and there is no hurry, right? No hurry. He's not coming yet. He's not coming for a while. Now, if you are of the opinion that you're not ready to live for Christ yet and that you've got all kinds of time to get your act together before he returns, you might want to read a few more scriptures and rethink that thought. God says in no uncertain terms, I'm coming whether you're ready or not. This ought to be the real message of Christianity right now, shouldn't it? That Christ is coming whether people are ready or not. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar and senior research fellow at Whitcliffe Hall at the University of Oxford, has some things to say in that regard. Let me apply some of his words here. He said, for many, Christianity is just a beautiful dream. It's a world in which everyday reality goes a bit blurred. It's nostalgic, cozy, and comforting. But real Christianity, he says, isn't like that at all. Christianity is not a reminder that the world is really quite a nice old place. It reminds us that the world is a shockingly bad old place. Where wickedness flourishes unchecked, 
where children are murdered, where civilized countries make a lot of money by selling weapons to uncivilized ones so that they can blow each other apart. Christianity is God lighting a candle and you don't light a candle in a room that's already full of light. Boy, is that true. You light a candle in a room that's so murky that the candle when lit reveals just how bad things really are. Listen to what the Apostle John wrote in his gospel in John chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. He said, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, today's message is about preparation. It's about preparing ourselves for the coming of Christ. It's, it's the message John the Baptist was born to preach and we are born again to proclaim. Let me say that again. It's the message John the Baptist preached and that we are born again to proclaim. You know what that message is? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How many of us preach that? How many people, when they begin to share Christ with somebody, that the first word out of their mouth is repent? Not, is it? And yet that was what the message was that John the Baptist preached as he came on the scene. And not only John the Baptist, which we're going to see in a minute. Repent for the kingdom of heaven as at hand. He, this messenger, will prepare a pathway. And that's what it says in chapter 3 of Malachi, verse 1. Behold, God says, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, in response to the mocking question of chapter 2, verse 17, where is the God of justice? The prophet says, he's coming and you're not going to like it. Okay? And that raises a concrete truth which must be understood by everyone in contemporary society. In the end, no one, not one single person who has ever been conceived will be able to avoid a confrontation with God. Can't do it. In these verses, we have the Old Testament prophecies of Christ's first and second coming all rolled into one package. There seems to be no distinct separation between the two. And by the way, that is characteristic of many, many Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ's appearance as the Messiah. The theological thrust is that had Christ been accepted by the nation of Israel as their Messiah the first time he came, there would have been no need for him to return a second time. Yet we know through hindsight now, living in the 21st century, that that was not the case, was it? 
Israel rejected their Messiah, crucified him, didn't believe it was him. Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, was not received by the people that he came to preach to, the people that he came to offer himself to. Instead, he was crucified. He also rose from the dead and ascended into heaven where he sits now at the right hand of God the Father until he comes again. That's what Acts chapter 1 says. In the meantime, he's dealing specifically with building his church until once again at a time known only to God when the last Gentile receives Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, he will return his focus of his attention back to the nation of Israel and deal with them specifically. Paul calls that a mystery. A mystery. And a mystery in Scripture is something that was formerly unknown in the Old Testament but now has been revealed to us in the New Testament. That's what it says in Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. Actually, I can read it to you so you understand that that's what the definition is. Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but is now manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. That's the definition of what a mystery is in scripture. If you're in Romans, you're following me there, turn to Romans chapter 11, and Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 27, um, describes what I just explained to you a moment ago about God now building his church, but one day when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, he's going to turn his attention back on Israel. Romans 11, 25 to 27. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, okay? It's a mystery that's now known in the New Testament, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced the hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. And so then all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. One day, the nation of Israel will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Amen? That'll be a great day, won't it? It's going to happen. Prophesied in Scripture, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and of pleading so that they will look at me whom they pierced and they will mourn for him like one mourning for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. You see what's contained in that verse right there? You probably just blew right past it. But that's literally saying that Jesus was God. God says, 
so they will look at me whom they pierced and they will mourn for him like one mourning for an only son and to weep bitterly over him. But you see, the people didn't weep or mourn when Jesus came the first time. He tried to tell them who he was, but they crucified him because of it. Why? Because they were not prepared. They were not ready. They had not taken the words of Malachi, the prophet that God sent to them, nor those of all the other prophets, seriously enough that God was preparing a pathway for his arrival and that it was being paved by the messenger of a new hope. That's what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. It wasn't that people couldn't understand Malachi's terminology. He was speaking words that were very relevant to their culture. Because it was the custom of Eastern kings to send men before them to remove, when they were going somewhere, to remove every barrier and obstacle in their path. So that these messengers, messengers would inform the inhabitants of, of a certain place that the king was coming and that the arrival of the king was, was near at hand and, and summoned that population to prepare the way by filling up the ruts and removing the boulders from the roads. Isaiah, for example, chapter 62 and verses 10 and 11 says this, Go out, prepare the highway for my people to return. Smooth out the road, pull out the boulders, raise a flag for all the nations to see. The Lord has sent this message to every land. Tell the people of Israel, look, your Savior is coming. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. This is all prophesied in the Old Testament. Let me give you an illustration of what that looks like in modern day terms. Years ago, years ago now, my family and I were driving back from visiting some friends in Texas. And we had been on the road for, for quite a long time, many hours. And this was when my kids were little. Do you drive a long time on the road with kids stuck in a van for hours and hours on end? What happens? A little bit chaos, right? And so as the dad, the dads can understand this, you got a goal, and your goal is to arrive at the destination. And you don't want any sidetracks or obstacles, right? So we've been on the road for quite a while. Traffic was pretty bad in the major cities that we were driving through, and it was super frustrating for me. As we drove through Nashville, Tennessee, I turned on the radio just in time to hear that then, uh, an announcement that then Vice President Al Gore, so you know how long ago this was now, right? Al Gore was arriving in town for some political event, and that the Tennessee State Police would be stopping now, stopping all transportation on the interstate. The very highway we happen to be on. In order to clear the way for his arrival. Well, I'll tell you the end of the story. By God's grace, we made it through the designated area within minutes before they shut it down. I won't tell you how fast I was going. 
But here's the deal. I didn't care one iota about stopping my progress in my life where I was going for my agenda in order for the vice president to arrive. Did not care. It was not important to me. I had my own agenda that day. However, because of that announcement, I had time to make the necessary adjustments to my plan. And had I not been prepared by that announcement, I might have lost a lot of time on the journey home. Now, I'm mixing a couple of illustrations here. Unfortunately, that's exactly what happened to the Jews when the king's messenger arrived to clear the path for his coming. They weren't prepared. They didn't even care. They hadn't made the necessary adjustments to their progress spiritually, and consequently, you know what happened? They got held up on their journey home. In fact, spiritually speaking, guess where Israel is today? It's still stuck in traffic. Who is this messenger of a new hope to which Malachi is referring that will clear the way? Because he doesn't say here. But we can identify him pretty easily, can't we? Because the New Testament does. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5 says this, The voice of one calling out, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the uneven ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, although this prophecy describes the promised return of the Jews from their Babylonian captivity, Ultimately, what it does is it points to the ministry of another prophet preparing the way for Christ's ministry of eternal salvation. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. We'll give you a clue on who this is if you don't already know. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make straight his path. Don't you love it when verses in the New Testament look back on prophecies of the Old Testament and they say, Hey, this is that. Don't you wish we had that today? Don't you wish you knew whether this was that today? When people say, Oh, this is the end. This is the time. Right now, Christ is going to come back tomorrow. Or, or so-and-so is the Antichrist. Right? Don't you wish you had this to say this was that? Well, we ought to pay attention when it does say it. And so did the Jews. They should have paid attention, actually. Chapter 11, verse 7. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? 
Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. You know what this is? This is Jesus saying, this is that to the Jews. They should have known. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, notice this in verse 14. He's just telling them right out straight. If you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who, is, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Oh, they should have known. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, Malachi prophesied, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Jesus told them who it was. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 10. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. Notice what Jesus is doing here. He's got two things going on. He's telling them that Elijah already came, but he's saying, in effect, that because he's not going to be accepted, Jesus isn't going to be accepted, that Elijah's going to have to come later on. I say to you that Elijah already came, but they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. You know, the angel Gabriel clarified this fact in the birth announcement of John to his father Zacharias even. In Luke chapter 1, in verses 16 and 17, many of the people of Israel, it says, will he bring back to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. But they didn't get it. They didn't see it. They weren't prepared. Had the people realized that John the Baptist was the messenger of hope, they would have understood that Jesus was then their Messiah. But they were unprepared. All the prophets, including Malachi, had come to prepare the way for them, to make it smooth for them, that the king might enjoy an unobstructed, comfortable trip. But like the many people of Malachi's day, like the majority of the people of John, in John the Baptist's day, and hauntingly, 
like the masses of people today, a deaf ear is turned to the warnings of the messenger. People refuse to make adjustment to their lives or room in their hearts for Jesus. You know, if I were writing the Psalms, I would put a sila right there. Pause and reflect on that statement for a moment. The people refuse to make adjustments to their lives or room in their hearts for Jesus. Throughout this book of Malachi, he calls people to change their direction. That's what repent means. To turn away from sin and to turn toward God. That's called repentance. John cleared the way by preaching this thing called repentance. And by the way, he got very, very specific with people on what that looked like. With Herod, for example. You know what John the Baptist preached to the governing authorities? The only time that I think we read somebody besides Paul preaching to the governing authorities wasn't about rights. It wasn't about what they should be doing governmentally. You know what John the Baptist was preaching to Herod? You married someone you're not supposed to be married to. You're in an incestuous relationship. He was preaching morality and salvation to this guy. He was saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's what our message needs to be, my friends, to people. Calling people to change their direction, changing the direction ourselves if we need to do that. And you know what happened to John because he preached those things to Herod? He lost his head. People didn't want to believe it. And people don't want to believe it now. But whether or not people believed it, and whether or not he came, Jesus came, didn't he? Whether or not they believed it, and whether or not people believe it today, Jesus is coming again. It does not change our message. Jesus came on the scene and he preached the same message of repentance as John. All the while, he was offering people grace and mercy to anyone who would receive it. His message didn't just stop at repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached love. He healed people. He preached forgiveness of sins. He gave his life for it. But he did not exclude the message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He did not exclude that. And you could look it up in your scriptures because Matthew chapter 4, 17 and Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 and John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 says that Jesus offered grace to people who received him. But he also started out his ministry preaching the same exact message that John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He satisfied the justice that people were clamoring for in Malachi's day. 
Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the justice for, that people are clamoring for today. They just don't see it. And you know how he did it? By laying down his life and giving it on the cross. Jesus is what Malachi refers to in verse 1 as the messenger of the covenant. That's the second part of verse 1 in chapter 3. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Who's that? That's John the Baptist, right? We just showed you that. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. He's the messenger of the covenant. And you know what? They were unprepared to receive him. They were unprepared to receive him when they had the opportunity. But Jesus gave them the invitation. He came to his own, John said. But his own did not receive him. But for everyone who did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Amen? Those people in Malachi's day, in John the Baptist's day, in Jesus' day, they were unprepared to receive him when they had the opportunity. Let me ask a question to everybody here, rhetor rhetorically, and everybody that will be listening to this message. Are you prepared to receive him? What about you? Have you received him? If you have, great. Then your responsibility now is to go out and clear the way for others to receive him. To make the path straight. You are a voice crying in the wilderness to people saying, prepare, prepare, prepare yourselves for the way of the Lord. Are we going to do it? That's the big question. I'm going to end it right there. We're going to pick it up next week. You guys get a reprieve today. Short sermon. That was never said of me. In 33 years of ministry, never. Here it is today. Let's take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. How, how vibrant and alive it is and how it explains things to us so clearly. God, I pray that we would make the necessary applications as your Holy Spirit leads us to our own lives. Yes, Lord, we need to love people to life. But they need to understand that repentance is in order for every single person alive as they come to Christ. Because we need you. We need you, Lord, and we, without Christ, are separated from you. And so I pray that if there's anyone listening right now to this message that has not bowed their knee to Christ, that has not declared him Lord of all, that they would do that, Lord, in their hearts and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior so that when he returns and their eyes do see him, they will be found to be one of his children. We praise you, our Father, for all that you're doing in our lives in this very, very strange time that we live in. But we know you're not absent and we know you're not silent. You have given us a message to proclaim and I pray by your Holy Spirit you'd empower us to do it and give us the courage 
to do it. And may we see revival. A revival come. And everyone that you have appointed for salvation would come to salvation. Even as your scripture says. We ask it and pray it in the holy and precious name of your son Jesus Christ. Our Lord and our Savior. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen.